Hey there, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to bring you the most accurate information we can. I have some fun surprises for you this week. I'm excited. I am too. I'm excited to see how you respond to them. Hopefully you can help me understand some of them. (laughs) Do you know what the first surprise is going to be for me? What's that? (laughs) The animal. Oh, you forgot which animal I'm doing this week. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) I certainly told you at some point. Just as much a a fun surprise for you as it is for the listener. The listener is probably better off than I am because I I don't have a title in my pod chaser to go off of. That's true. Yeah, you're flying completely blind here. Before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to say that we started watching The Bear on Hulu. Mm-hmm. Surprising lack of bear representation in the show. Aside from metaphor. Yeah, a metaphorical bear, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> I really had my hopes up. I thought this was going to be some sort of perhaps documentary about bears that had two seasons on Hulu for some reason. <laughs> nope. I'm kidding. It's a good show. It is. Not for young listeners, Not for young people. This one's for the grown-ups out there. Mm -hmm. I just don't want people out there to get their hopes up thinking there's going to be bears. It's like Yellow Jackets all over again. Like, you think it's going to be about that animal, and then it's not. There is a different show called Bear. Just Bear. Is that one about bears? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a good show. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, banter complete. You gotta check that box on the Google Doc. Yeah, that's, that's part of the <laughs> template. That's part of the structure of the show. <laughs> Little brackets that say insert banter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my turn to go first this week. Very good. What is this, I'm sure, interesting animal that you've chosen this week? This week I'm talking about the kawadi. Kawadi? Kawadi. You certainly know what this is. I have witnessed you with my eyes uh-huh. looking at this animal. In the same place. Yeah. I was in the same place with you. <laughs> I watched you make direct eye contact with this animal. I know you know what they are. You know are. what's throwing me? What? I think there's a Star Wars character whose name is similar to this. Na- to Kawadi? Kawadi Mundi, I think. That's the animal. That's what the animal oh. is. It's not a Star Wars character. <laughs> you didn't say the second part. That's because... That is a specific, like, variation on their name that I will explain a little bit later. Okay. But yeah, Kawadamundi is, like, a version of their name that you'll see around sometimes. I see. (laughs) Um, But it's kind of, like, a specific application of their name, whereas Kawadi is, like, the more sort of general use case of their name. It's not a Star Star Wars Wars. character. (laughs) Listen, I've I've got the Ahsoka show on my brain. I know, you're all Star Wars'd up. (laughs) Uh, The Kawadi was submitted to us by Mercy Anderson and Jack Brown. Thank you, folks. Great suggestion. I'm getting my information from the San Diego Zoo, Smithsonian's National Zoo, and National Geographic, and some other fun little sources as they come up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So... If you're not familiar with the Kawadi, as Christian clearly is not, have never seen this man. Sorry to this man. Do not know him. They're a mammal about Mm -hmm. the size of a cat. 
but with a much larger tail Mm -hmm. that is banded with black and white rings. Imagine a raccoon or perhaps a red panda, but like if you stretched it long ways. Oh. Just a long raccoon. They got the the really, really long snout with a bendy, flexy nose at the tip. It's a long raccoon. But not like anteater type. No. No. I'm going to show you a picture real quick. This is the boy. That's him. Ah, okay. Yes, I recognize this. I know you do because I've seen you <laughs> see them before. We've been to the same places. I know you've seen them. <laughs> so that's what a coati is. They're mostly found in Central and South America, but they can be found as far north as Arizona. So you can see them in parts of Arizona. Now, how'd they get there? They walked, I would assume. Ah. I mean... <laughs> It's, it's all connected, right? Like you can Arizona get there. Arizona borders Mexico, doesn't it? it? Oh my! <laughs> I was thinking, is there a different state in between? There? Is there a different state called Arizona that's somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is we have a close friend that lives in Arizona. We do, and what had this on my brain recently is that she sent me a picture of an Arizona license plate mm-hmm, that had a kawadi mm-hmm. on it, on it, and I thought that was really cool. Oh. Yeah, apparently you can find them in Arizona. Like, That's pretty cool. Walking around. They belong to the taxonomic family Procyonidae. Their closest relatives are, in fact, the raccoons. Um, some other famous members of that family are the kinkajous. There are four different species of coati. They're all vaguely similar. They have similar energy, same vibe. The name coati comes from the old Tupi language, which is indigenous to Brazil. And the other version of the name Quadamundi, um, I'll explain later where that comes from. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I was... Not George Lucas. No, it does not come from the mind of George Lucas. <laughs> it's the same brilliant mind that came up with, what's the guy's name? <laughs> Droopy McCool. Droopy McCool. Yeah. <laughs> now, while looking around for etymology information on the name, I came across a Wiktionary page. I don't know if you've ever perused the offerings of Wiktionary. No, never. But the Wiktionary page listed a nickname, Brazilian Aardvark. Really? That it specified as, quote, non-standard. And there was a link. Hmm. So I clicked it. And according to the Wiktionary page, they said, the name was picked up following its insertion into Wikipedia in July 2008 by Dylan Breves as a joke. The hmm. hoax was uncovered in 2014, six years later, but some use of the name has continued. Okay. So apparently someone just as a joke put on the Wikipedia page for Kawadis that they're also called Brazilian aardvarks <laughs> and nobody checked. So like people just like, you know how like sometimes, I don't know, like BuzzFeed listicles or whatever will like pick up these weird little fun facts. I mean, when when I see articles that talk about the international, like different names for something, I've mm-hmm. seen paragraphs of these kinds of like also known as. Oh my gosh. Have you ever looked at the one for Roly Poly? There's an entire section on the Roly Poly page that's like all the different little right. names for them. So, I mean, I, I could see it. It'd be easy to slip in there. Yeah, I totally would not have given that a second thought. But yeah, apparently I just found that interesting that mm-hmm. there was a little nickname hoax. To get right into our ratings for this animal, which if this is your first time listening to this show, we give animals ratings out of 10. The first category is effectiveness, which are physical 
adaptations that the animal has that let it survive and thrive in the type of ecosystem it lives in, things built into its body that let it survive and thrive in the ecosystem it lives in, I'm giving the Kawadi a 7 out of 10 for effectiveness. Now, it is very, very well adapted to life in the trees. Okay. Their front ankles can rotate 180 degrees, which lets them turn their front paws backwards, facing their tail, which lets them crawl down trees head first this sounds familiar so this is not uncommon in arboreal mammals fusas can do this okay i think binturongs i think can also do this as well Hmm. it's interesting because a lot of the adaptations seen in kawadis you're also going to see in a lot of other arboreal mammals Mm -hmm. it's kind of a convergent evolution thing right like all of these animals without being related to each other are all responding to the same circumstances so they're developing similar traits Right. And another one of those traits that they have that helps them live well in the trees is their tails. It's one of the first things you notice when you look at them because they have this long banded tail. Mm -hmm. The tails are not completely prehensile. Like the tip of it, they can kind of maneuver around, but it's mostly kind of... Um, it, it's not the sort of thing that they're going to be like wrapping around branches and like hanging from or anything like that. Right. It is a powerful tail though, and it helps them balance and support their body on tree branches. So they could lean it against a tree to use it kind of like a fifth leg, mm-hmm. or they can just hold it above themselves to help them balance. In fact, uh, when they're walking, like either on the ground or through branches or something, they often hold their tail straight up directly above their body. You've probably seen pictures of this. Is this the thing where someone took a video of them walking on the ground and then played it in reverse, and it looks like little teeny brontosaurus is walking around? <laughs> it does. <laughs> that was actually the thing I had next to my oh. nose, that they look like little brontosaurus. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were on the same page. And that's thought to actually maybe be a way to signal their location to other coatis. Oh, like a little flag. Yeah. So the females travel in bands. When they're, I like that they're called bands. I know, it's really cute. So another thing that they have, another tool they've got in their belt is a flexible snout and a piggy nose. Oh boy. It's really, really cute. They can use it to sniff out food in the leaf litter or in the crevices and little holes of trees. It's almost elephant-like in that it is like a very long snoot that mm. is very flexible and they can like bend it in all sorts of different directions. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a little eerie to look at, but I think it's kind of cute. <laughs> Big snifflers. They also have long agile fingers that give them great dexterity and let them take advantage of food sources that other animals might not be able to access. So they can do things like pry bark apart oh. or, you know, like get into little crevices and stuff that maybe other animals might not. Now I did give them a little bit of a deduction here because they don't have as much manual dexterity as their cousins, the raccoons. Hmm. Raccoons nearly have thumbs, right? right? They're well known for having like incredible manual dexterity. Mm-hmm. And uh, the coatis haven't quite gotten that far, but they still do have those long slender toes. Hmm. Um, I give them a slight deduction for the fact that they don't have a ton of physical defenses from predators. So they do have their long, sharp teeth. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have long, sharp claws that are great for digging and prying open things like tree bark. But we've seen more creative defenses from arboreal mammals, right? Like porcupines and stuff. Like, I would like to see something a little more exciting in the physical defenses department. What predators is this dealing with? Every predator you can think of. Every 
imaginable predator. Jaguars, <laughs> ocelots, eagles. Like they oh. got those harpy eagles down there too that are like the size of a house. That's an exaggeration, but those things are huge. <laughs> Crocodiles, snakes. There are so many predators. <laughs> There's so many. And you'd think that they would have buffed up a little bit because of that. Mm. But no, these things get uh, eaten all the time. Are they nocturnal at least? They're not. They're diurnal. <laughs> Sorry, bud. <laughs> F in the chat for all the kawadis that get eaten on a daily basis. But they do cover themselves a little bit with behavior. Okay. Which is our next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity, behavioral adaptations. I'm giving the kawadi a whopping 9 out of 10. Wow. Yes. These are very clever little critters like i mentioned earlier female kawadis live in bands with their young but males leave the band and tour solo there when they reach maturity <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this is where the kawadamundi name comes from okay solitary male kawadis are much bigger than females and their behavior is very different so they were once thought to be a completely separate species and that's where they got the name. The name Kawadamundi meant lone Kawadi. So it was like a separate name used for what they thought was a separate species. Mm-hmm. And that referred specifically to the lone male Kawadis. Okay. Now we know it's just males and females of the same species. But still, that's why you'll still see both Kawadi and Kawadamundi used to mean the same animal. So this is just a combination of sexual dimorphism being separate and also being separated from females. Yes. So like physical dimorphism, but also like behavioral, like Mm -hmm. they're not social. They go off on their own. Interesting. Um, I could definitely see how you would see that they both look and act differently and assume Mm -hmm. that they're like a different species. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where the name comes from. Okay. Um, And traveling in large groups is thought to help the much smaller female kawadis find strength in numbers. It's a little bit easier for them to defend themselves or look out for each other, right? If they see like a threat coming at them, they can sound an alarm call and let everybody else know so that they can, you know, evade or do do whatever they need to do to survive. Mm -hmm. They also practice reciprocal altruism among their band, which means that they help each other, right. um, especially in terms of child rearing. All of the adult females in the band take care of all of the babies. Okay. It's not like this is my baby and I'm going to take care of my baby. Sure. It's like this is everyone's baby and everyone <laughs> takes it. So a female kawadi will even nurse pups that aren't hers. Right. I think they call them kittens actually. Okay. Um, but she will nurse young that are not her own. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a true like takes a village effort sort of thing. Is there uh, like a rotation they do? You know, I don't know if it's like the sort of thing where it's a rotation, but they do take turns. Mm-hmm. So like one mother will go off to forage and she'll leave her young behind with the other mothers. Hey, that's just efficient. It's extremely efficient. <laughs> yes, it's great actually. <laughs> Especially because the males go off and like do their own thing, right? So they're not staying behind to help with the babies. So they rely on each other. Do better, Kawhi. <laughs> well, it looks like they've got their bases covered, so they're doing fine. But what I really wanted to talk about for their ingenuity is that they are really, really well known for their curious nature and clever approaches to foraging. So an interesting example I found that you can actually find videos of on YouTube is that if they find a tarantula, 
Mm-hmm. So tarantulas are covered in what's called urticating hairs, Ooh. which will sting and irritate you if you touch them, mm-hmm. right? They're covered in these hairs. If you just grab a tarantula with your hand, it's going to hurt. Like it irritates your skin. It doesn't feel good. So what they do when they find a tarantula is they flip it over and roll it around on the ground, <laughs> which feels like bullying. And uh, they, they rub it around to get all the hairs off before they eat it. Oh, okay. I thought they were trying to like roll it away like you no no they, they want to eat it <laughs> but they knock sense. all the hairs off first okay yeah so i thought that was pretty clever you can see videos of that it's pretty neat now while i was looking up accounts of people uh observing you know like kawadis and their behavior and and things like that i found something that i found really charming I found an article from Natural History Magazine from 1936. Oh. Yeah. And this was an account by ornithologist Frank Chapman about his time on an expedition in Barro, Colorado, an island in the Panama Canal. So Chapman was there to study the birds of the island, like tanagers and toucans, stuff like that, fruit-eating birds. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to attract the birds to where he was staying so that he could observe them and study them because that's what he was there for. So he would set out these trays of fruit, specifically bananas. Those bananas also attracted one particular kawadi, which the researchers grew familiar with to the point that they gave him a name, Jose. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and they could tell it was him because he had a particular like injury to his face that they could identify him by. So in his article, Chapman writes about his struggles to leave bananas out for birds without the kawadis getting to them first. Okay. This is going to sound really familiar to anyone who's ever tried to keep a bird feeder with squirrels around. <laughs> he starts off by placing the tray on trolley wires that are attached to the balcony of the place he's staying at. Mm-hmm. So there are like trolley wires attached to the balcony. He balances the tray on top of the two wires. Jose figures out how to climb up a nearby tree, descend onto the wires from above, and walk across hmm. and get the tray with the bananas on it. Mm-hmm. So Chapman moves the tray to rest on just one wire because he figures that Kawadi is using one wire for his feet, the other wire for his tail. He's like, what if there's only one wire? He's not going to be able to balance. And he lowers the wire to make it slack so mm. that it's more difficult to walk on. He writes, Jose mastered the new contrivance at the first attempt. (laughs) It is true. His little journey was ended so hastily that the tray turned over with him, but he lost neither his head nor his footing while the banana was grabbed as it swung above him and devoured before he resumed his journey upside down and returned to the tree somewhat winded but experienced (laughs) after lunch the journey was repeated with everything under control and it was evident that while i had added to jose's skill i had in no way reduced his sources of food Mm, so he figured it out and like got better at it so he was like well dang okay so next he tries tying the bananas with string and dangling them from branches thinking, okay, if I just have them hanging, then the birds can fly up to it. Mm -hmm. But the Kawadis learned how to pull the string in, like pull up on the string and bring the banana up to them, or just break the whole branch off and run off with it. Well, oh, oh, then you have like a whole a whole clutch of bananas. Yeah, so they were like, <laughs> they immediately figured that one out. That one was not difficult for them at all. So finally, he puts a metal bucket upside down mm-hmm. 
on top of an eight foot tall pole <laughs> hmm. and then puts the banana tray on top of the bucket. Oh, okay. The Kawadis climbed the pole. They knocked the bucket with their paws to loosen it off of the pole. And then they were able to grip the rim of the bucket with their claws and pull up to climb on top of the bucket and reach the banana tray. <laughs> So Chapman writes, in the end, therefore, not even the tub was immune, and at this point I abandoned further attempts. The Kawadis won. The birds must take their chances. I would supply the bananas. It's <laughs> very raccoon behavior. Yes, this is extremely raccoon behavior. Uh, very squirrel-like, but, you know, really goes to show that, like, they're extremely clever and very good at figuring out things that they're clearly unfamiliar with, right? This is nothing they would have ever experienced in their life. And they can figure it out, like, very quickly. And they love the banana. And they love bananas. <laughs> it's, it reminds me a little bit of that that trick of designing trash cans that are simple enough to be used by humans, mm -hmm. but too complex to be used by bears. Right. Like, he has to come up with a something that can be accessed by birds but not kawadis and kawadis are way smarter <laughs> <laughs> just grease the pole there you go I see, he should have thought of that well this was 1936 i don't i don't know what i'm sort sure of... they had grease in 1936 <laughs> i don't know lard <laughs> had lying around pomade yeah probably <laughs> And my final sort of thing I wanted to talk about for Kawadi ingenuity is that Kawadi behavior has applications in computer science. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. An optimization algorithm oh. inspired by the hunting strategies of Kawadis was introduced earlier this year, January of this year. Mm -hmm. So the behavior that inspired the algorithm is a certain behavior said to be used by Kawadis when hunting iguanas in treetops. Oh. Now, I want to say... This was described by the, like, paper introducing this algorithm. I tried to look this up elsewhere. I couldn't find anyone else talking about this behavior. Hmm. So I'm not 100% sure where they got this account from. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> sure. But they explain that the Kawadis split into two factions, one of which will go up the tree to harass the iguana into either falling or jumping out of the tree. The other Kawadis stay down on the ground and attack it once it falls. Okay. So they flush it out, basically. They flush the iguana out of the tree and then wait at the bottom. It goes kind of back to that like reciprocal altruism thing. Mm -hmm. Like they're working together. My extremely strained and rudimentary understanding of... The algorithm, I'm not a computer scientist, I don't know if this is something that makes any sense to you, but my extremely basic understanding is that it tests variables by randomly placing them throughout what it calls a search space, mm -hmm. and then updating their position in each iteration only if it brings that variable closer to the objective. So... The objective being the location of the iguana, which has spawned randomly somewhere in the right, search space. Right. So with each, I guess, iteration of the algorithm, it only updates the position of each variable, which is the kawadi, Right. if it brings them closer to the iguana. Mm -hmm. So if a kawadi is hunting iguanas, they're not going to move away from it, right? They're only going to move if they can get closer to the iguana. Right. So this is kind of a shortest path algorithm mm. where the, the target is moving, right? Yeah. And then the movement is being initiated by your own search mm -hmm. so that's an interesting way to 
put it. <laughs> yeah. They also in the paper said that they, you know, also had some inspiration from Kawadi, like what they described as like escape strategies. Mm. But then when they described what those escape strategies were, they were like, when a Kawadi is attacked, they move away from the predator. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what escaping is. <laughs> so I I didn't glean anything interesting from that. But I found that really fascinating that like the this behavior of an animal could be like sort of applied to I mean I'm I'm curious as as to what the real world application is of that kind of algorithm. That is above my paper. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but Okay, so I, I will say the paper I got that from is called Kawadi Optimization Algorithm, a new bio-inspired metaheuristic algorithm mm-hmm. for solving optimization problems. That was by Mohammed Degani et al. in Knowledge-Based Systems in January of 2023. And while I was reading this paper, it also taught me that a lot of algorithms are designed based on nature mm. and animal behavior and evolution. So they cited lots of biology-inspired algorithms algorithms with a few of my personal favorites being the whale optimization algorithm which is based on humpback whale bubble net feeding Hmm. and also ant colony optimization and slime mold algorithm oh (laughs) i did not dig too much farther into those i'm just happy they exist (laughs) so that was an interesting little rabbit hole i fell down yeah uh you know learning about how animal behavior is being translated into computer science. Yeah, that's cool. Falling into the overlap in the Venn diagram of our interests, <laughs> you and me. <laughs> I did give them a 9 out of 10 for ingenuity. I did deduct a point because they eat a lot of trash. And sometimes that trash is not necessarily edible. Yeah, that's kind of a global problem right now, isn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> yeah, they are little trash bandits, just like raccoons. They will dig through your trash. They're very good at getting it. Uh, and they will eat things that don't necessarily help them. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I don't know if that's something they'll learn <laughs> over time, but uh, I did take off a point for that. And finally, for aesthetics, I'm also giving them a 9 out of 10 because they're so cute. What was the one negative point? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what I felt in my heart. Is it the nose movement, perhaps? It's not even that because I find that very cute and mm. endearing. I think that's adorable. Just for some vindication of my earlier Star Wars comments. Please. Is that what you were doing over there? No way! <laughs> it's Ki-Adi Mundi. He was Are a... you serious? There's a whole <laughs> Star Wars character named Ki-Adi Mundi? Mm-hmm. Or at least there was. Rip. Oh. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> How did it go? Um, Order 66. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Darn. Well, so that's where that confusion came from. Great. Awesome. <laughs> Glad to have that cleared up. Well, uh, much like Ki-Adi Mundi, mm-hmm. some Ko-Adi Mundis are also in peril. Uh, <laughs> like my uh-huh. you like my segue into conservation information. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the Eastern Mountain Kawadi, mm-hmm. one of the four species of Kawadi, is endangered mostly due to threats from habitat loss and fragmentation. The species has a pretty small, like, limited range, and it is up in the mountain forests where there is a lot of deforestation going on. They are at risk because of that. The other kawadis are mostly doing 
okay conservation wise they have very wide ranges and very high populations Mm -hmm. but the ones up in the mountains are facing a little bit more peril than the others so as always be good stewards of the forest and the planet so that we can continue to have noodly little trash bandits yeah rummaging for our bananas (laughs) (laughs) and that's the kawadi thanks hon thank you let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the max fun network and we'll get to christian's animal Hi, uh, this is Lori Kilmartin. And I'm Jackie Cation. And we have a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show on Max Fun. And it's very exciting because what do we talk about? Comedy. Stand up comedy. We both do stand up comedy and have since the dawn of well, Christ. Well, Jackie. Is that offensive? It is offensive to me because you've aged me. <laughs> uh, we started in the late 80s and we're still here. You can't kill us. So go to The Jackie and Lori Show on Max Fun and listen to that. Jackie and Lori Show. New episodes Monday, only on MaximumFun.org. Greatest Trek is the podcast for all your modern Star Trek needs. It's funny, informative, and now it's also timely. That's because every Friday, right after the release of a new episode of Strange New Worlds, Picard, Lower Decks, Discovery, or Prodigy, we bring you a review of that episode. There's some great new Star Trek coming up, and we're going to cover all of it. You'll like our show because we're both former video producers, so we bring a lot of insight into the production and filmmaking aspects to these episodes. And we also have a very refined sense of humor, so we make lots of delightful fart jokes along the way. So come see why Greatest Trek is one of the most popular television recap podcasts on all of the internet. Subscribe to Greatest Trek at MaximumFun.org or in the podcast app you're using right now. So darling, what animal do you have for us this week? This week I'm talking about one of the more rare crocodilians. Really? The gharial. That's a cool name. It is. Scientific name, Gavialis gangecticus. Now, if you were going to have a Star Wars name, <laughs> Gariel's a pretty good one. Yes, it is. And this species was submitted by Max Marcel, Alison Bataille, Dalton Weeks, and Cameron Swingle. This one was in high demand, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, that's over a couple years. That's true. But... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Sometimes it takes us a while to get to these. We don't do that many animals. <laughs> yep. But turns out this was good timing. Yeah? yeah. Why's that? I'll talk about it <gasps> in the end. I'll be waiting with bated breath. Yeah. And I'll be getting my information from Animal Diversity Web and the Smithsonian's National Zoo, as well as Fort Worth Zoo. So, like I mentioned, this is a crocodilian, so it is in that same kind of grouping of alligators, crocodiles, and caimans. Mm-hmm. So these are reptiles that are at least partially aquatic, I guess is the name for that. Yeah. Predators. Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) So you and I are most familiar with the American alligator, of course, which was one of our, one of, if not the first episode. the first episode. Yes, the first episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Very familiar. I have a tattoo of of an alligator. You do. On my arm. Yeah. Florida also has crocodiles. Yes, the American crocodile. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about crocodilians is that, you know, you look at them and they look very dinosaur-like, mm-hmm. right? It feels like being like next to what a sure. dinosaur would have felt like. But they also kind of look lizard-like, right? One would probably look at one and assume that must be a giant lizard, right? Sure. Very lizard vibes. It's got the floor plan of a lizard. <laughs> yeah, it got sort of the, <laughs> the lizard starter kit 
going on. Maybe mm-hmm. a lizard that like specked into barbarian or something like that. Sure. But crocodilians, so gharials, alligators, crocodiles, are all in this group of animals called archosaurs, which that larger group also included dinosaurs, which also includes birds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does not include the lepidosaurs, which are the snakes and the lizards mm. and things like that. So crocodilians are more closely related to birds okay. than they are to lizards. All right. Yeah. So crocodilians are not dinosaurs, but they're kind of like the next step away from them in the reptile family tree. Right. They're like just outside a dinosaur. Okay. Makes sense. But birds are dinosaurs. And so dinosaurs, so crocodilians and birds are like next to each other. Right. That blows my mind that like you look at a crocodile mm-hmm. or an alligator or a gharial and you look at a Komodo dragon and you look at like a flamingo. <laughs> yeah. And like the, the crocodile is closer to like the flamingo or the hummingbird or the pigeon or the turkey. Yeah, it is to the lizard. I think some of that is, you know, it's hard for us as, you know, creatures that live uh, at max, uh, you know, a century and some change. It's hard for (laughs) us to conceptualize hundreds of millions of years. Right. Right. Because, you know, there are some dinosaurs that you often see depicted in media together, but, you know, one of those dinosaurs is closer to us than it was that other dinosaur. <laughs> right. Like, that period of time is so outside of human comprehension, right. right? And we, I like, I think it's John Green. I don't know if John Green was the first one to use this, like, visualization for it, but it's at least the one that I know of, where he described, like, natural history as if the entire planet Earth was condensed into 24 hours and Mm. how like humans show up at like 1159 (laughs) (laughs) i think we've also heard that kind of thing but like the solar system history put into the into reference of a calendar year right yeah it's (laughs) that amount of time is difficult to conceptualize but right that explains why like even though they're morphologically very different the, the crocodilians would be more Related to the mm-hmm. birds than they mm-hmm. would be to the lizards. Right. Sorry to derail you. Oh, it's fun. Uh, so long body, long tail, long snout. Hot dog way. Yeah. Uh, short legs. Uh, scales almost looked, looks armor plated. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Got those osteoderms. Mm-hmm. And then eyes that let them be mostly underwater, except for their eyes and nostrils sitting above the surface, right? Yeah, so they've got them lined up like just on the very top of the mm-hmm. body. Yep. These are named after the Indian clay pot called the Gara. Hmm, interesting. Yes, and I'll talk a little bit more about why that is, but otherwise their color the coloration is dark brown to a greenish brown on top. Okay. And the bottom is goes from a yellowish white to a white color. Okay. And their babies have dark bands that fade as they as they age. Oh, I wish they would keep them. <laughs> That's cool. I think we, we see this in a lot of other crocodilians, too. Sure, yeah. Now, size-wise, males can reach 5 to 6 meters long, mm, or six, 16 to 20 feet. That's so big. That is big. They're huge. And females can reach 3.5 to 4.5 meters long, or 11.5 to 15 feet. That's still really big. Very big, very long. They can be found today in fragmented populations in Nepal and northern India, found in clear, fast-flowing currents. Jumping into our first category of effectiveness, I'm giving an 8 out of 10. That's really good. 
So they are one of the longest crocodilians. I noticed. <laughs> yes. Um, I was struggling to find a definitive, here's the biggest. Mm-hmm. It appears they're at least second to saltwater crocodiles. It's not by much, though. Right. Yeah. Sounds neck and neck. Yeah. Do you run into that fisherman problem of how people are like, I caught one that right. was 30 feet long. <laughs> yeah. Saltwater crocodiles are cool, too. Maybe we can talk about those one day. But We've seen saltwater crocodiles. We have. It's crazy. They're <laughs> wild. Those things are massive. Yeah. Next thing I wanted to talk about is they have a differing sexual maturity age between really? males and females. The gap is pretty wide. Um, so females mature around eight years old or three, meter, three meters in length, mm-hmm. whereas males mature around 15 years old. Oh, my gosh. At, at around four That's meters. a problematic age gap. <laughs> well... You know, (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you're physically incapable of reproducing before then, that's fine. But I'm keeping my eye on Uh y'all. So this, you know, comes into play a little bit later when we Mm. talk about conservation, of course. Wildly mismatched lifespans. Now, I want to come back to this Gara that we talked about. Yes, please. Where that comes from in their name is because the males, as they grow older, they they develop this sort of bulb on at the end of their snout where their Was nostrils ask are. What that's all about. Yeah. So that is a cartilaginous kind of bulb that grows as they get older. Really? Um, and that cover that partially covers their nostrils and it acts as a sound resonator. <gasps> what? Yeah. What for? <laughs> what sound are they resonating? Um, I'll touch on that in ingenuity. Oh, okay. Uh, but that's the kind of physics behind it. Okay. Uh, and it allows them to make a buzzing sound with it. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's where the name comes from. Uh, that's actually probably the easiest crocodilian. You're going to be able to tell the difference between male and female. When honestly. you see one, you know immediately <laughs> what it is. They're so goofy looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you see anything about why their whole situation looks like that? Why they look so bizarre? Um, I have some thoughts, at least. Oh, what what are your thoughts? So the big thing that separates gargoyles from the other crocodilians is they have a very narrow snout. It's needle-like. Yeah, very narrow. Yeah. Um, reminds me of some types of fish, actually. Mm, yeah. Uh, whereas alligators particularly have very broad snouts, right? Mm-hmm. And then the crocodile's a little bit narrower, but still much more broad than the gargoyles. Right. So the gargoyles have these very... Narrow snouts with skinny with lots of pointy teeth, and the teeth are like really long and mm-hmm. skinny too. They look so goofy when their <laughs> mouth is closed. All of the teeth are just jutting everywhere. When they 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 like interlock or interlace with each other, right? Yeah, it looks like who's the guy from The Walking Dead that has the baseball bat full of like nails? Negan. Yeah, it looks like that baseball bat full of nails that he's got. <laughs> so, um. As you might be able to guess, that kind of business in there (laughs) makes them very good at catching fish, Mm, right? So we see this in sharks, too. The the sharks that have the long, thin, pointy teeth are really good at catching slippery fish, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So this also means they're not going after things like terrestrial mammals and things like that. Right, because I think like alligators and crocodiles typically will go for things that are a little bulkier. Right. But I guess if the gharial's not going after those big bulky things, it can get away with having a thinner mm-hmm. snout because it doesn't need that much muscle behind its mm-hmm. like strike, I guess. Right. And it's a good thing that they're not going for terrestrial things because they have weak legs. Oh, no. <laughs> Relative to their, you know, 
uh, cousins and such. They're not great at moving on land. Oh. Um, they spend most of their time in the water, and you'll you'll really only find them out of the water when they're sunbathing or laying eggs. Mm-hmm. Good time to mention they do thermoregulate. Oh, they can actually like warm themselves and. So they well, I mean, I mean that they come out of the water to bathe in the sun to warm themselves up. Oh, they like behaviorally thermoregulate. Yes, I get. Sorry, it. Okay. <laughs> I thought you meant like they did it themselves. No, nope. okay, no. Nope. If you can't thermoregulate yourself, sore bot is fine. <laughs> yeah. So the eggs of the water to warm themselves up. Uh, many reptiles do this. Uh, and then, of course, they lay eggs. You know, they exit the water, build a nest, and lay eggs in that nest. But they need to get around a little bit, right? So the way they get around on the land oh boy. with these weak little legs oh boy. is basically a squirmy belly slide. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> They're so close to becoming snakes. They're so close. They're almost there. Yeah. So you'll you'll see them do this like rapid side to side wiggle and <laughs> belly slide. <laughs> Especially if they're startled and they're trying to escape. I wonder if we look ahead in time, you know, 100,000 years in the future, do you think there'll be <laughs> giant snakes at that point? <laughs> like, you know what? These legs are holding us back. Because, like, evolution is an ongoing process. It's, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's happening now all around us. It'll never stop. Do you think that, like, <laughs> that's just what's next for them? Like, we just, we exist in this slice of time where they just haven't lost their legs yet? I don't think so. Because, I mean... They seem to be around for a while, so mm. if, if they haven't changed yet. That's true. Speaking of their legs, they also have webbed feet, Ooh. which lets them uh, propel themselves through the water even better. They have smooth scales, which is different from most other alligators and crocodiles. Really? Yeah. Huh. Maybe helps them like swim through the water probably. Like, less traction and drag. Yeah, probably. They have the largest eggs of all crocodilians. What? Weighing in at six ounces or 160 grams. That's about three times the weight of a large chicken egg. I'm I'm just trying to imagine three eggs together. A modest omelet worth of egg. A modest omelet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you put three eggs in your omelet typically? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. See, this is perfect. This is single serving. <laughs> you probably shouldn't eat their egg. No, especially not now. Uh, which brings me to our next category of ingenuity. Oh, I'm, yes. Where I'm giving a 7 out of 10. Very good. So first, uh, we kind of hinted at this before, but they communicate through sounds and vibrations. I did want to come back to this. Yep. So the males, they use that bulb on their nose uh, to make those buzzing noises, which they use for territorial defense and courting. He's putting on a show. Uh-huh. Where they just honk that big old nose of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Um, That's so, how you courted me. <laughs> especially this next one, where they'll uh, they'll actually do they use their jaws to do water slapping to attract mates. I love that. <laughs> That's so good. You're always slapping the water just with your with jaw. Just with my face, just full on. <laughs> <laughs> is this doing anything? Yeah, this is working. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about is their uh, parental care for young. It's mostly maternal. Great. <laughs> Moms are doing some heavy lifting this episode. Yeah. So first of all, the mom will lay an average of 40 40 eggs. 40 legs? (laughs) Nope, 40 eggs, which I guess would be 160 legs. (laughs) (laughs) That was good math. (laughs) Yeah. The mother will will then guard the nest and incubate those eggs for 60 to 80 days. She's putting the work in. And then, when they're ready to hatch, she'll help excavate them from the nest as they're hatching. Oh. Yep. 
does she do the <laughs> so like other crocodilians will like carry their young around in their mouths right but she has like Cannot. no room to do <laughs> Cannot. Was, if she tried to do that, they'd just be spilling out the it's sides. It's a precarious balancing act. <laughs> <laughs> do they have to sit on top of her nose? No. She, they don't really do the carrying thing, so she'll just help kind of excavate them out. That's It's free real estate. Listen, there's <laughs> there's room up there. Yeah. Just toss them up there. She'll then protect those hatchlings for several weeks following the hatching. This is the time that, like, for alligators at least, you know, people are worried about alligators. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if you're like near an alligator, they're probably not going to care that you're there that much. Sure. With the exception being oh, if yeah. it's a mother alligator with a clutch of eggs. Yeah. You do not want to be anywhere near a mother alligator protecting eggs because mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. cares very much that you're there and she does not want you to be there. Yep, yep, yep. So I would imagine this is probably similar for the gharial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, the father does come into play a little bit, but just because he's tolerated nearby. (laughs) But he's on thin ice. (laughs) Now, the hatchlings will do this cute thing where they all climb on his back. (gasps) (laughs) Daddy Jungle Jim. But he doesn't really actively protect them. (laughs) But you know what? Okay, for a lot of animals, Uh the fact that he's not killing them is great. That's a plus. <laughs> That's a huge improvement. Can I show you a picture? Please. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> There's hundreds of them. He looks so over it. He's so tired. Look this, at him. This is this is the goal I have pictured in mind at peak baby fever. <laughs> <laughs> i know this is exactly the life you want and they're so darn cute they look completely unbothered that he's there too they're not even giving him the time of day that's why he's not eating them because there's a billion of them they have they have they have him outnumbered he can't do anything mm-hmm. there's a swarm of children he has on his back so i think the babies are very cute they are very cute so that brings us to our last category of aesthetics. I'm giving an 8 out of 10. Really? Yeah. This, this, is this your man? <laughs> <laughs> so they are very different, of course, from the American alligators that you very and I are different. used to. Yes. Um, I just think they're pretty cute. The bulbous kind of nose thing is a little off-putting, which is my really only negative about them. It's the fact that, so first of all, the, the eyes on top of the head uh-huh. are cartoonish. Right? The Mm -hmm. the eyes are, like, really close together and, like, up on top of the head. That looks very silly. Right. And then the nose is so skinny and so, (laughs) like, it just tapers to such a tight, like, bottleneck and then balloons out at the end. Yeah. It's so (laughs) silly looking. I can't can't take this guy seriously. (laughs) I'd probably... uh, be talking about them differently if i came face to face with one i don't know i mean they look like they would be menacing but they they honestly don't mess with living humans very often with living humans very often right they mess with non-living humans in that area there are burial ceremonies that involve bodies being put into bodies of water got it okay yes so that makes sense unfortunately their conservation status is critically endangered (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, no. So, earlier we talked about, you know, today's range involves Nepal and northern India, Mm -hmm. but their historical range included Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Myanmar, Nepal, and Pakistan. Wow. 
So that whole river system mm. in, that, in that area. Now, a big reason for their dwindling numbers, common things we've, we've seen before, loss of habitat, pollution, river fragmentation. Oh. So when their populations start to get fragmented because mm-hmm. of things blocking the waterways or that kind of thing. And unfortunately, poaching for traditional medicines. And then a little bit of fear-based killings. Oh, really? Like yeah. people like kill them preemptively? Yeah, yeah. Huh. I wonder if that's, like, how people will kill, like, I don't know, wolves, right, like, preemptively. But it sounds like gharials aren't... Even less, I guess... Justified? Yeah, even less justified It sounds like gharials are just eating <laughs> small things like fish and stuff, right? Yeah, mostly. Although I could see if you're a fisherman, you might, like, yeah. see a gharial as your competition, I right? suppose. Golly. It's estimated to only be around 200 reproducing adults in the wild today. What?! That's so few. Mm-hmm. Oh, my god! And then that kind of combined with that long period of time it takes to mature to mm-hmm. be able to reproduce, I'm sure, plays into that as well. Right. Like, like they have to live for quite some time before they're able to reproduce even yeah. once. Did you say the females had a much shorter time before they're able to yes. reproduce? That, yes. I guess, works in their favor, right? Because the females are going to kind of be the limiting factor reproductively. Right, yeah. So, like, if the females have the shorter time to mm-hmm. maturity, then I guess that's probably a good thing had i thought about it i i would have dug a little bit deeper to see what their the gender ratio is Mm -hmm. between like how out of a certain clutch how many are born male versus female etc and like all crocodilians that is all determined after the egg is laid um and is somewhat temperature based Right. So this is something you see with reptiles that's getting a little precarious now. Mm-hmm. Crocodilians aren't the only ones. Uh, there are like turtles and things like that right. that are temperature dependent sex determination. Yes. So where like when the temperatures are warmer, then you'll get more males. That really becomes a problem when temperatures rise. Yeah. Like over a long period of time where like average temperatures are rising. Uh-huh. And that sort of permanently skews the sex ratio of the population, mm-hmm, which can mm-hmm. really mess with their reproduction. Yeah. So you've seen this with, with a lot of reptiles, but for a reptile that is already being threatened by other things and yes. already has a limited range, it's just a, a log on the fire. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're not doing too great. There's one, one feel good story I came across. Oh, good. Very recently, the Fort Worth zoo in Texas announced last month that they were able to hatch four individuals in captivity. Oh! This had only ever been done in the U.S. once before in 2016. Wow! And that was a that was a single hatchling. And this one they were they were able to hatch four from two different mothers. That's surprising because you you mentioned that they have these very large clutches that they lay a lot of eggs mm-hmm. at a time. I wonder why they're not able to rear that many in captivity. I'm not sure, but uh, this was part of a over a decade long program that mm-hmm. the Fort Worth Zoo put together. Yeah. Um, and it, it involved really trying to nail down the um, the habitat for the gargles, mm-hmm. um, which involves uh, heating the sand at the right temperature, making sure the slopes are such that they can easily get in and out of the water, you know, because oh, they yeah. can't, you know, lift themselves up with their legs. And oh, that's true. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought of that. So that's, that's one recent feel-good story. Oh, good. I'm glad. I yeah. hope that means more efforts to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a ton of zoos have them either. We've seen them. Yes. The alligator farm. Yes, the alligator farm in St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. They have gharials, as well as the saltwater crocodiles that you mentioned earlier. So you can really, the, the saltwater crocodiles can really flex on the gharials. Like, <laughs> Number one, baby! <laughs> yeah. 
But the gharials there are, are very, they're they're gorgeous. They're mm-hmm. lovely creatures. Yeah, yeah. And might take you by surprise, uh, like if you'd never heard of them before and then see one. You see one and you're like, <laughs> it looks like a child drew a crocodile. <laughs> you're like, I don't think they're supposed to look like that. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like an AI generated crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clowning on these critters, but I when I when you see them like in person, they're gorgeous. I think they're both the Probably the most charismatic, well, I was going to say the most charismatic of the crocodilians, but that one small caiman is also very cute. Oh, the little baby? Yeah. Little, what is it called? A dwarf caiman, I think? <sighs> I forget the name now. His baby. <laughs> Permanently baby alligator, <laughs> basically. Well, but like, we do have very strong attachments to our alligators. You know, you're your friendly neighborhood dinosaur, right? <laughs> like, I, I don't live in the area where gharials live, but... I would have to imagine that people that do live there probably feel pretty strongly about mm-hmm. their, you know, river giants. Yeah. That stuff is cool. It is. It's hard to see them and not think like, that's amazing. That right. is so cool. Yeah. It's cool that we share the planet with these creatures. They're so nice. Yeah, I think so. Well, thank you. That was really great. I'm glad mm-hmm. to learn more about these funky little guys. Mm-hmm. Really riffing on the whole crocodilian Sort of scheme there, <laughs> really improving a little bit in the face department. Yeah. Well, thank you, darling. And thank you, dear listener, for spending this time with us. It's been a wonderful time. If you like what you heard today, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. You can also hang out with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, TikTok. Links to everything will be in the episode description. And we'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside the other amazing shows on the network, like the ones that you heard promos for here today. I'd also like to thank Louis Zong for our wonderful theme music. Maybe we should get a little gharial buzzing in there. Yeah, totally. A little nose honking in I, there. I wasn't able to find a, a, an audio clip of what it sounds like, but maybe there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? Actually, just give me an impression of what they sound like real quick. No, see, I, I was thinking it's more of like a bzzz type thing. That is the closest I think we're going to get to you actually doing an animal impression on this show. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye, y'all. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.